Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. We're now on episode three. My name's Alex Elaine, and of course, as always on this podcast, we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. Today, we got a very special guest indeed, Chris. Great to see you. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. Thanks for having me, Alex. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So, Chris, for the people that don't know you, it'd be great if in two minutes or less, you could just tell us a bit about who you are, what you do, and a bit about your career highlights as well. Yeah, sure. So, at the moment, I am the founder and coach of a company called Sales Psyche. Big focus of that is supporting and developing sales and commercial teams' mental health, well-being, and mindset. Uh, it led from me first starting in sales about 14 years ago, starting out door-to-door sales, 100% commission only, and realizing I had crippling anxiety, um, which led me down that kind of route of wanting to better understand what anxiety was, like how to manage it and how to let it serve me rather than sabotage me is kind of how I sum up it now because before it was kind of stopping me from doing it. And I love sales and I, you know, from a sport background, really enjoyed it. So it kind of led me through my career in that respect, which is why I'm so passionate with Sales Psyche now and that advocate of talking about mental health and well-being and sales psyche um, in a nutshell it's a bit like a gym membership for your mental health and well-being so we offer live and on-demand sessions from morning mindset sessions mini workshops anonymous Q&As and courses and people can also book one-to-one confidential and impartial sessions as well to come in and talk openly about their mental health well-being sales challenges leadership challenges whatever it might be so yeah that's my bag that's awesome man it's it's a great concept, right? And I think many people would say maybe something that's that's been neglected for mm. quite some time. So it's awesome to hear that there's someone out there that's kind of grabbed it by two hands. So j- just before we go any further, Chris, tell us a little bit about what preceded Sales Psyche. This is something that you started up, you know, relatively recently. Yeah. What, what came before that? And then ultimately, what was that moment in which you said, now it's time to mm. do something about this? Yeah, so started out, as I mentioned, door-to-door sales, did that for two and a half years, learned a lot, loved it. Best experience of my life from a sales experience and also confidence and everything as well. Then moved into more around sales training, which gave me a better understanding of how I was selling it, but also designing it as well from negotiation, presentation and so on. And moved into like a global key account manager there and was working with people like Just Eat, HP, the BBC. And then from that point, I was like, I want to get into coaching. I, I love selling. I'd gone to uni and I'd done sports coaching. So I've always had that kind of DNA in me and and seeing other people benefit from my support throughout my career. So I moved into a fintech role, kind of took a step back, as it were, from a sales perspective, as you always have to do from money-wise, to go into that kind of role, into a fintech role. While I was there, was like, I want to do something eventually of my own. I don't know what yet. So I started the podcast, not another sales podcast. And then started to being asked to come in and do talks and sessions and people were really buying into that kind of mindset side of things. I moved into a sales enablement, head of sales enablement role there after Payment Sense said, we want you to do what you're doing outside of work, in work, can you build the sales enablement function for the business? So within nine months, we bought on 12 coaches, we had 500 field sellers as well, and was basically building that. The pandemic happened. I then started looking at it and thinking, I know I want to do something. And I'd seen the pandemic had allowed the topic of mental health to be talked about a bit more, but still very much from a reactive point of view, as in the person has burnt out, the person isn't performing, the person's left. Now let's have a conversation. I didn't feel like anyone was really doing anything from like a preventative and proactive point of view. Mm. And the kind of defining point for me was if I saw someone else doing this in six months, how would I feel? And Mm. if I didn't do it and I said I would resent myself, 
I'd resent the business. I'd resent everything. And I was like, just go and give it a go. So came in one day, September, a year before last, and handed my notice in and said, look, I want to go and start this. Came in the next day, expecting to have to work my three months notice. They said, you can finish tomorrow. We'll pay you three months of gardening leave as a thank you. Go and start your business. Met my friend down the pub, designed the logo, the website, and went from there. Wow. What a story. Very bold. And, uh, you know, fast forward to now, it sounds like you're having some great initial success. So congratulations Thank to you. you on that. Chris, I kind of want to peel back a little bit, right? You mentioned starting out doing door-to-door selling mm-hmm. and having your own challenges with, with anxiety, right? And then I think back to the beginning of my career as a, a BDR, pretty much with a phone and a phone book and, and told to just go out there, right, yep. and find a way to a number. Um, it was brutal, right? It was like being in a boiler room. But I, I fast forward to now and I ironically say it's some of the best experience I ever had because the mental fortitude that it gave me has been a massive part of me being able to sustain my career as long as I have. So I'd love for you to kind of relive those days again for a moment when you were doing the door-to-door, when that anxiety was crippling. How did you get through that? And what have you learned today that you would tell that same Chris back then? Yeah, really good question. I mean, initially it would it would stop me. So my aim was to try and knock 100 doors a day, get into eight, close four. That was like the conversion conversion ratio that we tried to work off. We tried to do three laps. We were out there from like 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. basically every day. And you do three laps, you go around your 100 doors three times. So there'd be some days, of course, where you've gone done two laps and people aren't in or you get this thing of nothing's going to happen. And then, you know, with the with the nature of it, what it really taught me was, you know, it could be the last three or four doors you knock that day, you just don't know. And started playing a game of hide and seek almost. But what really helped with my anxiety almost was reframing it and going, what is it trying to tell me? Because I feel like, and we can delve into this, that all emotions are there to serve you rather than sabotage you. All emotions are there to support you. We just look at certain emotions in the wrong way sometimes, like anxiety, stress, fear, and we almost label them as these negative emotions so that when they come up, you make you you feel more anxious from being anxious. You feel more stressed from being stressed. So I started to go, well, what, what is it that's making me anxious? For example, it might be I was anxious that I'm not going to hit my targets today or, you know, what if I don't close anything and I'm not going to make any money? And I was like, okay, well, rather than just dwelling on that and making me think like that is going, well, what are one or two things I can do, I can control myself that are going to be able to manage that? Or maybe I just need to go over my pitch a bit more in the morning. Maybe I just need to be more effective and like utilize the area a bit more. And like thinking about all those things and turning that anxiety into actually like something of a benefit. And the key thing was then when that happened is going, do you know what? If I wasn't anxious this morning, I wouldn't have done that. Mm. I wouldn't have thought that and actually starting to build a level of gratitude for it. So that when I was starting to feel anxious, it was like, this is, this is a good thing because this is helping me. It's not a a negative thing. And that's kind of something I've built over my career. It's not something that happens overnight, but Mm. I feel like a lot of emotions, if you can learn um, and understand what they're trying to tell you, and the kind of smoke alarm that's going off. The house isn't on fire yet. It's a smoke alarm going off in the kitchen. It's a warning. You go in and you switch it off. It's a bit like when you're thirsty. You don't sit there and go, oh, what happens if I didn't drink for two weeks or three weeks or a month? You go, oh, thanks for the, thanks for that brain. I'll have some water. So it's pretty like the same, but with anxiety and stress. Mm. Is when these things come up, it's going, what's it trying to tell me versus all these thoughts rushing over you? Yeah, and... This is really powerful stuff, Chris. I want to kind of go to almost level two with you on this, right? And so when I look at a lot of theory of many different things out there, right, we can look at it and say people almost know that they shouldn't be thinking this way. They know they should be thinking differently. They know they need to try and turn their mindset around. 
but the theory versus the practical when maybe things are crazy in someone's life or they are a million miles behind their number and no matter how many times you tell them think differently they're still a million miles behind their, behind their number how do you actually bridge that gap mm-hmm. in a way that you don't lose someone where they say hey chris this sounds great but my life just it's just not there i can't turn this yeah. off how do you bridge that gap yeah i think there's two things there first of all i would say the conversation you have with yourself sets the tone for every other conversation in your life and you mentioned there a lot of people do this is i should be doing this i need to be doing that i have to be doing this or managers might be saying that and it's very dangerous to be telling yourself you need should or have to do something because what you do there is you put pressure on yourself immediately you create this level of judgment and the possibility for self-sabotage you're telling yourself, I, I, if we take it out of a work context, I have to work out today, I need to. All of a sudden, you've got this pressure on yourself. And if you don't, you get to the end of the day and you're like, oh, you know, I didn't do that. And you, you create this judgment on yourself. Or if you're trying to get, for example, changing your diet or doing something different is, I need to do this. It's almost like this willpower every time pressure on it. So it's changing the language to I want to or get to rather than need, should or have. So I want to get better at understanding how I manage my anxiety. Or I want to get better at understanding how I manage pressure versus I need to get better at it. I should. Because it's like, well, who said you should? Is I want to, because it just creates that kind of more healthier mindset, first of all, around it. The second thing is, whether it's yourself, whether it's a, a manager telling you, no one can tell you to do something because it won't work. You need to be able to, and this is where the coaching side comes in, but from more of a self-coaching point of view, is think about the questions you're asking yourself. So what kind of questions? And this links to something called cognitive restructuring. Um, you may have heard of it's used in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. And it's about reframing your thoughts. If you just keep telling yourself, I need to, should do, you're not going to change your thinking. You need to ask yourself questions. I use the analogy, our mind's like a Google search engine. So anything you type in, it's going to come back with evidence. So mm-hmm. if you type in a statement, it'll come back with all the evidence to back it up. If you type in a question, it'll come back with possibility. So rather than thinking I need to, some really practical questions would be, right, okay, first of all, what is it that's triggering me? What's this? What's this sort of like scenario that's causing this anxiety when is it for example in a particular point of the month i start to worry about targets Mm. then what is the worst case scenario what is the thought that's going on in my head what we call like automatic negative thoughts ants so these like the first things that pop up it might be that you know i'm I'm not gonna hit my target and then by not hitting my target i'm gonna be under pressure and then i might be put on a pip and then i might lose my job and then you know everyone else around me is gonna be really successful and we go down this kind of rabbit hole of negative what ifs Mm. And it's like, okay, well, that's the worst case scenario. What you've got to imagine then is our brains, and I'm, I'm using a lot of analogies here, so feel free. <laughs> our brains are a bit, they're always thinking of the worst case scenario because they're programmed to keep us alive. And that's a good thing, but the danger is sometimes they can go too far. And it's a bit like a prosecution in a the courtroom. They're just throwing evidence at you going, this is going to happen. It's thinking, how do I create a defense? So a question to ask yourself when you're thinking this is, where is the evidence? So if I'm thinking I'm not going to hit my target this month, this meeting isn't going to go well, this demo is not going to go well, where's the evidence that it's not going to go well? Where's the evidence you're not going to yet? Well, actually, there probably isn't any. And then asking yourself, what else could be true here? Mm. So it might be, for example, if you take it from a different perspective, you might have a prospect that maybe hasn't come back to you yet. Where's the evidence that you might be thinking, oh, they don't want to do the deal, you know, they're, you know, they're just going to pull out of it, you know, I'm not going to hit my target. It's, well, where's the evidence of that at the moment? What else could be true here? Well, actually, do you know what? What you're selling is a very small part of what they're trying to do within the business right now. So maybe actually you just need a bit more time versus trying to pressure them. And then in the end, they just pull out because they're like, hang on a minute, it feels a bit too like overselling here. 
Yeah. So yeah. where is the evidence? What else could be true here? And then what are t- one or two things I can do to reduce the chance of that automatic negative thought from happening? So if I'm thinking this demo is not going to go well, what is it about the demo I'm not thinking is going to go well? Is it that I think I'm not going to know enough about one of the key decision makers? Is it I think they're going to ask a certain question I don't know the answer to? Okay, what's that question? Right, who can I find out about that? Maybe I can run through it with someone in the business. Then when it happens, going back to what I said before, reflect on it and go, do you know what? If I wasn't anxious, I wouldn't have thought about asking those questions. I wouldn't have thought about running it through with the team before. Actually, do you know what? That feeling has actually helped me in that situation. Yeah, I mean, ton of insights in that, Chris. Some have stood out to me for sure. Think bigger than anything, and I was speaking to my, to my last guest actually about this, is really how your perception is almost everything, mm. right? And a lot of what you're talking about, what's going through my mind is, is reframing yeah. perception on scenarios because what we come to realize in life is a situation is what it is, right? That situation is, is static mm-hmm. to a certain degree, but how you react to it, how you interpret it, the way that you allow it, ingest it in essence, is really a, a choice and a yeah. decision. And there's an opportunity, I guess, with a lot of what you're saying to really reframe that perspective and and choose to not allow it to be all encompassing mm. in a certain regard. Would you say that's fair? Yeah. Yeah. And this sort of delves into that controllable and uncontrollable thing where we spend so much time and energy on the things we can't control that we we use it all up with the things that we can. I was listening to the um, the High Performance podcast the other day with Jake Humphreys, and they were talking about fault versus responsibility. And the, one of the things that stood out to me was they, they say, it might not always be your fault, but you always have responsibility for how you react to something. It's always re- your responsibility. You can't always change what happens, but you can always choose how you react to it. Hmm. Yeah, no, great point. So Chris, something I want to explore with you, right, is that sales is tough. Right. I, you know, I've I've had a pretty long career now, as I mentioned to you a little bit about how it began and thinking about all of my peers. I think some people might look at you and argue that to an extent, mental health challenges are inevitable. Right. Some people mm-hmm. may argue that some people might just say that the reality is, is that no matter how much kind of training and things that you try to do to change it, can you really ever kind of mitigate and truly avoid finding yourself in positions where you you might have some anxiety or might just feel overwhelming sensations of stress because this is the road you've chosen. Yeah. And the upside often for people is potentially life-changing earnings, great career development, and all of those other things. So what do you say to the person that tables that type of argument to you? Yeah, I suppose if we look at it from a physical health point of view, you could go to the gym every single day and it doesn't stop you from having a heart attack. It doesn't stop you from getting sick. It doesn't stop you from getting ill. But what it does when it happens, A, it reduces the chance of it being as serious as it could be, and B, it probably helps you from doing that regular fitness get back to where you were before quicker. So it's the same with this kind of thing is that it's not saying that you're never going to fall down. It's, you know, this is one of the the myths of resilience is that it's all about strength. It's not, it's about flexibility. It's about adaptability. It's not about never having those days. It's about when you do stopping those days becoming weeks and months or stopping those moments from becoming days. So it's, you know, you could do all of this. You're still going to have those moments. I still have those moments, but by doing it, I know it's going to stop me from sort of dwelling on this area and actually be able to take back control sooner rather than later. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's great points. And I think I've experienced a lot of that type of growth myself recently, mm. to be honest. I think for a long time, I'd maybe neglected mental health to it to a large degree and found myself in, 
you know, all of these, feeling all of these types of things that yeah. we've spoken about so far. I've spent a lot more, I guess, intentional focus on it, maybe in the last six to 12 months and mm. absolutely felt a difference really in terms of just getting control over my mind and being able to be a little bit more effective. And I'm sure kind of implementing some of your advice, yeah. I could get even better. Just kind of, I guess, looking ahead now, especially as this podcast is really about elite performance more than anything else, Chris. When you look at elite performers that kind of embody a lot of the types of things that you talk about, what is it that they do really, really well that maybe you don't see enough of in the people that you're seeing burning out, for example? Mm. I think one of the biggest things is reflection, is self-reflection. I think what I see when I, when I work with people who are at that level is they're so self-aware of what they're great at and what they're not. And they're also their biggest fan. And that's what I think a lot of people struggle with in sales. And the reason why you have these days and these weeks of, oh, do you know what? I'm really struggling. You know, this isn't going well is, well, how often are you actually reflecting on when you are doing well? We're so quick to sort of jump on when we're not, but we're, we're very rarely actually jumping on when we are. And, you know, I might, you might've heard of the book Legacy by James Kerr. Um, he, it's all about the All Blacks and some of the things that they do. And their thing is, I kind of summarize it as celebrate success then analyze it. So, Often, like elite sports teams, when they win something big, they'll go out and celebrate. And when they lose, they'll come in early the next day um, and analyze it. Well, the All Blacks actually do it the other way around. So when they lose, they'll go out and sort of, you know, forget about it, still analyze it, but not in the immediate future. When they win, they'll come in early and analyze it because they feel like they can learn more from their wins than they can from their losses. It's, it's easier to replicate something that you're doing than changing something you're not in the, in the short term. So it's very easy, I think, when we have a good week, a good month to kind of get caught up in it. A deal comes in. You're like, yeah, I feel really good, euphoric. You might go out, you celebrate, you ring the bell, all of these things. And you're like, yeah, on to the next one. But it's like, have you taken stock on what you actually did there? And not just what you did, but how did you feel? Like, actually, it's linked to something called neuroplasticity as well, which means we can actually increase our baseline levels of happiness. And I'll, that's a whole different conversation we can go <laughs> in. But by savoring these moments as well and reflecting on them is going how did I feel when I went into that meeting? How did I feel when I first made that call? It's almost going through your sales process and looking at every intervention and going, what was my headspace like there? Like, what was I thinking, feeling, and doing as a result of that? Not just from the deal itself, but outside of it. What was my diet like? What was my sleep like? All these things, just being able to analyze all of that and better understand it because you are going to have these waves, just like life. I think people kind of forget that with sales. Like, oh, it's ups and it's downs. Well, that's what life is. But sales is kind of condensed into a shorter <laughs> time frame than maybe what we feel in life. True. And it's about, I think, really understanding that and having a different kind of mindset around it as well. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. So I almost want to take like a, a half step back in a way to say, he's given some great tips some great insights and a better understanding of why, you know, elite performers, how they're able to drive this. But the thing I'm really curious about is almost why we have such a big challenge and such a big reputation in sales in the first place for things like burnout, anxiety, you know, depression, panic attacks, mm. things like that. Why is that happening? And is that what's the root cause of that problem? Yeah, I think there's a number of things. I think, first of all, because there are so many variables, that's the biggest thing. You know, if you look at other industries, you you know what you're going to do pretty much on a daily basis. Whereas in sales, you've probably got control of about five or 10% of things and everything else is is out the window. And, and that sends our brains into haywire because our we are creatures of habit. 
about 50% of our day is made up of habits. And every day when you're trying to go into a sales role, you can't do that. You can, you can have your habits you do in terms of your call outs and so on, but what happens to you, no day is the same. And that's what can cause that anxiety and that panic attack because our brain can sometimes struggle to accept that we can't control these things. And then we get into that cycle of thinking that we can and thinking you can control something that you can't creates more frustration and anxiety by it. It's almost if I said to you, push that wall over, you can do it. You tried doing it and you couldn't. It's like getting into that headspace of, oh, why can't I do this? You know you can't. But if I told you you could, which sometimes we tell ourselves, we then get ourselves into that frustration around it when actually we couldn't do it in the first place. Yeah. So that's like one of the key things there. Yeah, no, it's great. And it kind of brings into my mind one thing that I often encourage, certainly reps that are maybe early in their career as well, is to try and get into an operating rhythm or or have an operating system Mm. for your day, right? It it gives you an immediate sense of purpose. It gives you clarity around your day. And it kind of takes a little bit of that volatility and that, uh, when you say about many different variables being in the day, kind of strips that back a little bit, right? Because I wake up every day and I know exactly what I need to do from a morning routine to how the day is set to pan out to also a nighttime routine. And so I'd love to hear if that's kind of something that that either you encourage or whether you've seen upside from people that have much more of an kind of operating rhythm to their day and that actually helping them be a little bit more effective in the way that they can actually tackle a day. Yeah, I think what a really good, simple and really effective exercise to do is an issue. Look at your day an average day or a week and draw a line and get a bit of paper, draw a line down the middle and just write controllable and uncontrollable. And just first of all, write everything down each day that you have control over and write everything down you you think you don't have control over. And you'll be surprised first of all by doing that exercise. So like, actually, I recognize already, I think a lot about that and I can't do anything about it. So with that list is then going, right, if I can control all of these things, how do I then build them into a schedule? So as you talked about there, is what can I control in the morning? I can control like what I give myself, first of all, versus what I give other people. So for me, I won't look at my phone for like the first hour in the morning because I'm like, I want to give myself something, first of all, at the start of the day before I give everything else to other people. Mm. So I have that routine. I don't have the phone in the bedroom, for example, which really helps. That, that was a game changer for me. Yeah. Um, just not having it there it means I can switch off a bit more. I'm unlikely to check my phone in the evenings, you know, working with US clients and so on. Yeah. Um, and getting into that headspace. And also a really effective exercise that I talk to a lot of people about and use is how to switch off at the end of the day. And I think this is a really big challenge at the moment, particularly in a remote environment, is I've been working in the room all day and I'm waking up at 2 a.m. thinking about stuff or I'm sitting there with my wife, girlfriends, kids in the evening, and just thinking like, how can I not think about work? And it's a really simple exercise. I call it the brain dump exercise. And the reason why we do this, first of all, is our brains, our primal brain, doesn't know the difference between the past, the present, and the future. So we often will go through our day and we don't actually process it until the end of the day. But by that point, we're obviously, you know, chilling out with family and friends. And our brain starts processing these things. Now, when we're processing this thing, the primal brain is, oh, they're happening now, which is why the anxiety comes up. The other part is our brain goes, oh, we don't want you to forget this, so we'll keep it top of mind because it's scared that we might. And then by keeping it top of mind, the amygdala, our little smoke alarm in our brain goes, oh, this is scary. And that's why we wake up because we feel like it's happening already to us. So the brain dump exercise, four quadrants, end of your day, you can take five minutes, you can take 15, top left-hand corner, pending, right on everything, Brain dump literally everything that you've got coming up tomorrow from a work perspective, personal perspective, anything that's on your mind. Bottom left-hand corner, what went well? What were like two or three things today that went well 
that you control, not what happened. Because if you ask yourself what happened today that was good, you'll talk about uncontrollables that you didn't do. Top right-hand corner, challenges. What were the things that got in the way that made you less efficient, that caused stress, anxiety, whatever it might be? And bottom right-hand corner, solutions. So the idea behind that, top left, pending, brain dumping it all down. First of all, subconsciously, you're telling your brain, we're not going to forget this because we've written it down. It's a bit like, you know, if people are listening and they've got kids, if a kid's asking for something, you, you write it down on the fridge because they see that you've written it down. You're not going to forget it. It's evidence. So writing that down. And secondly, by writing things down, we can look at things more logically because mm. we switch off that amygdala part of our brain. We can look at things from a different perspective. Bottom left, what went well? By doing that, it goes back to that piece earlier of being your biggest fan, giving yourself credit, even on the days where you might have found it tough. Top right-hand corner, challenges. We have those days where we're like, oh, I'm so stressed today. I'm so glad it's the weekend. But we don't actually analyze sometimes well, what actually caused it. Maybe I was got too stuck in my Slack messages. Maybe I was too stuck in emails. Maybe I got frustrated by a call I had in the morning. Then solutions. Well, if they're the challenges, what can I do tomorrow to change this? What are those marginal gains I can work on each day? And just by doing that, even in the evening, your brain does still go there. You can get this bit of paper out and go, look, I've got a plan for this. We're all right. We're okay. Sort of building that reassurance to that primal sort of childlike mind to go, look, we've got this covered. Wow. I mean, Chris, you are kind of a, a treasure trove of <laughs> actionable insights and analogies, which is pretty special. So no, really appreciate you sharing all of that. I also want to share something that's been working really well for me that I've only been doing for probably about a month and it plays into my morning routine and my nighttime. And I think a lot of it ties a little bit into what you're talking about here as well, where in the morning and at night, I just have something I call my one, two, three, which is really kind of the step one, two, and three that I must do in the morning before I actually start using my phone or the day starts. Mm. And so for me, I just say, wake up, meditate, and then the third thing is to do some kind of physical activity, maybe a walk, maybe the gym, whatever the case is. Once I've done the one, two, three, then I can go on my phone and let the world come and come at me full yeah. throttle. And then the same kind of thing at, at nighttime, I've got uh, meditate, journal, read a book, then it's bedtime, right? And of course, all of the other things that come with, with nighttime as well. And so I think that the thing that we're sharing here is actually having some kind of system and process in a way, right? To either brain dump as you've described it or whether it's going to help you turn off. You've got to find a system in some way that mm. works for you. And as salespeople, I think we thrive on system. We thrive on process quite often. So I just think that's a, a great thing to share at both ends. The question that I have for you in all of that though, Chris, is You've shared so much so far. If I was listening to this and as I'm part of the conversation, my question is, where do I start, right? You know, you, you, you've given me a hundred different things that mm -hmm. I could do. If you could distill that down to a first step, what's the first step for someone that's sitting there listening to this, suffering with anxiety and they're behind their number? What's the one first thing they should do? Yeah, and just on that, actually, you mentioned about systems. I had one person say to me once, never forgot it, never wake up by accident. And I kind right. of, the same with never go to bed by accident, like always have a plan. We have a plan in our day. We attend meetings. We schedule our, our day religiously is do the same in the morning to start off with, to build those habits. Um, and it goes back to actually what you just said there. There are a hundred things. And I talk about this a lot as well is I don't want people to go and try all of this. And this is what comes down to why we struggle with goals, why we struggle with New Year's resolutions is just pick one thing. 
because we are a creature of habit and we need to build those rituals to become routines, to become habits. So I think one thing I would recommend is always thinking, asking yourself, what's the question here? So the biggest challenge, which we talked about here, is your self-talk, is your mindset, is what's going on up there. Little question, side note for you. Can you guess how many words per minute our internal chatter is? Just to give people some context. So we speak about 130 words a minute. Mm-hmm. We type about 50. Rap God, Eminem, mm-hmm. 260 words per minute. What do you reckon our internal chatter is? You got me on the spot here, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm probably going to say... 10x or even more yeah yeah between 800 and 1200 words per minute oh look at that is i'm on the money <laughs> you are, you are. <laughs> that's brilliant you are so oh. it's like sticking yourself on times 10 that's what's going on up there so that's why i think all of this revolves around that self-talk the conversation you have with yourself these limiting beliefs these things i'm not going to hit target this anxiety so going back to it is asking yourself what's the question here if i'm telling myself i'm not going to hit target what's the question here how can i hit target if i'm telling myself I'm not going to have a good day today. What's the question? How am I going to have a good day today? Hmm. This demo isn't going to go well. How can I ensure this demo goes well? You change it to a question, you're going to look for possibilities, going back to that Google search analogy. If you're typing in a statement into Google, this isn't going to go well. The earth is flat, for example. It's going to come back with all the evidence to go, hey, yeah, the earth is flat. You ask a question, is the earth flat? You're going to get back a lot more possibilities. I I love that you say that because the amount of times I've had to say that to other people as well. I say, whatever you search on Google, you will find, right? You know, you go and search, why is this thing the most dangerous thing in the world? It's going to tell you why. If you say, why is it the safest thing in the world? It's going to give you all of the things for that. It's our mind. Yeah. um, What you type in, it will will come back with, because it's confirmation bias. It will look for all the evidence to back it up because- the Henry Ford quote, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're always right, is our brains are always looking to serve us. They're always going, you're thinking this. So yeah, let's look for all the evidence to back it up because we're your best mate. And they're thinking they're serving us, but of course, a lot of the time they're not. Yeah, no, you're absolutely spot on. So I guess, Chris, you know, you've now had a pretty long, extensive career. You mentioned, you know, 14 years plus, me, me, myself getting up towards that number as well. So when we're thinking about those who are maybe not even in sales yet, but are thinking about taking on a sales career, but actually a big part of their concern is a lot of the connotations that we've spoken about, the stress, the burnout, but they also see the upside. What would you tell them to prepare for? How could they best prepare for actually making a transition into sales so that they can maybe start it in the right way, you know, versus some of us who kind of fumbled our way through and now learning some of these lessons a little bit later down the line. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think the key word is prepare there, is go into it with a kind of proactive and preventative approach. I mentioned that's what we do with sales psyche at the start, but a lot of the time with this, it's very reactive. You wait to have a problem. You wait to not have a good month. You wait to not have a good day. You wait for a deal not to come in. And then you go, I need to change everything. It's like, how can you work on it proactively and preventively around it? So I think having that plan and going into it and actually analyzing and going, right, what are some of the things I think are maybe going to come up here and how do I address them initially? So if, for example, I'm thinking about going into sales and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm that confident about it. What is it about that I'm not confident about? Like almost do like a, a spider diagram and write down everything that comes off. Like you, you write yourself in the middle is like an SDR or a VDR. Draw everything off and go, what are all the things that I think are holding me back? Well, actually, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'll be comfortable with the product or questioning all this. Okay, which of these three things do you think would be 
the biggest game changer. If you could fix those three things right now, it would make the biggest difference. Well, it would be this, this, and this. Okay, out of those three things, what's like one actionable thing you can do to actually go and learn more about it if it's about where you're maybe interviewing for a company is, who can I, maybe I could speak to someone there. Maybe I know someone on LinkedIn that could introduce me. Maybe I could just ask a person a question. Mm. If it's about questioning, you know, who do I know in my network or where can I find some content, a podcast, for example, like this, of talking about questioning? It's just almost creating that kind of plan around it. That's the first thing. The second thing is reframing failure because I think this is such a big challenge and not just for people moving into sales or thinking about it, but throughout is actually looking at failure in a different way is this perception of when you fail, that's the end. But it's actually, that's the way you grow. That's the way you develop. And, you know, sales is a funny game, isn't it? We can lose the majority of our deals and still be very successful. Yet when we lose a deal, we almost like it make it the end of the world. Yeah, It's like, you know, if you, you go into a casino, for example, you, you can lose the majority of the time and probably come off worse from it. In sales, it's the opposite. Yeah, You could lose yeah. 70, 80% of your deals and still be very successful around it. So I think it's reframing failure. And it's... This comes down to a perfectionist mindset. It's not saying you accept failure. What you're doing is when it happens, you're able to prepare yourself for it more. Sure. No, absolutely. And a lot of these behaviors and characteristics, we've got to remember that we need to train them like a muscle, right? Yeah. I know you've been spending a lot of time in the gym recently. <laughs> so it's, it's super relevant that things don't just happen in mm-hmm. life, right? You've got to listen to something like this take it in, but then you've got to practice, right? Yeah. You've got to go and actually do the reps, do the training and start to build it because we all build up all of this almost emotional baggage, right? Mm-hmm. Over the years, if I've not been prioritizing something for 10 years and then I listen and hear that I now should, I'm not just going to start doing that on autopilot, no. right? It's understanding, it's identifying it. And I've realized the biggest thing, certainly for me, has been making it a fundamental part of my routine. And one of the more recent things was meditation, for Mm. example. I have probably been the most on and off person with meditation in the world in that it's been phenomenal for me and, and a big help. But I just stop it and start it and stop it and start it. And then about a month ago, I said, Alex, there is no stop and start. It's now part of your operating rhythm, part of my operating rhythm. So I wake up in the same way that I would go and eat breakfast is the same way I now meditate. And that attitude towards it has been transformative. Mm. And so I think it feeds a ton into the things that you're saying about kind of reframing, changing the narrative, starting to build these things as to habits right and much more part of an operating rhythm etc yeah and what you've said there actually is like a few steps ahead as well what we talked about it's part of your identity now Mm. and that's the thing is when you're trying to break bad habits is rather than saying i can't is i don't so if you are trying to change things but what you're doing there is on the flip side of building a good habit is this is who i am this is what i do so for a lot of the time when we're trying to change these habits it requires willpower for telling yourself i can't do that you know, I, I can't, I can't drink today or I can't do that. It's willpower. If you say I don't, for example, a vegetarian does not expend much willpower and not having to eat meat. It's part of their identity. It's true. So on the flip side, what you just talked about there, this is part of my identity. That's where you've got it to now through that habit is this is just who I am. So the benefit of habits is they outsmart emotions because it doesn't require willpower now probably for you to do it. Mm. It's a bit like going to the gym is we've all been there when we get up at 6am and we're like, oh, I can't be bothered or going for that run. And we do because we've built a habit around it. Yeah. And we might not, this is a whole different topic, feel motivated, but by doing it, we then feel motivated afterwards. It's true. 
That's true. And I'll add a point to that. Someone once told me it's not about being motivated. It's about being disciplined. Yeah. And I think that plays into it sometimes. You're not going to wake up every day feeling motivated no. to go on that run or to make those cold calls. But what you've got to prioritize is the discipline mm. that you know it's taking you a step closer towards your goals or your objectives. So no, I think it's a great point to share. I want to switch gears with you slightly here, Chris, and just talk a little bit about passion and, and purpose. And the reason I, I thought this was really relevant with you or it was top of mind for me is because you took a big leap of faith to start a business during a pandemic. And certainly what I feel from this conversation is because you're very passionate mm -hmm. about the area. It's something that you felt early in your career and you really wanted to make a difference, but it was bold to do that certainly in the middle of the pandemic. So I just want to kind of get your broader perspective on, there's a lot of people that do their job to do their job or to pay bills, right? And they kind of go through their life and that's really what life looks like for them. Do you kind of see that as an appropriate way to live or would you almost encourage everyone to really chase passion over any other variable when deciding their job or their future? Yeah, I think one of the biggest misconceptions of passion and even purpose is that it has to have a title to it. So if you take passion first of all, I think one of the misconceptions is it always has to come from work. You know, I, I know a lot of successful people that are very good at what they do, but their passion isn't work. It's something else. It's, but by working, it means they can fund their passion outside of work. And, and that's their thing. The same with purpose as well is, I think, a misconception around that is that you almost need to have this purpose to, to drive yourself at work. Whereas I think, first of all, not everyone finds their purpose. And second of all, it can, there is no sort of timestamp on it. I wouldn't say there's like a one size fits all for it because I think that's almost creates this pressure in this society and lack of patience as well, which I think we've lost of people wanting to find their purpose and moving into jobs and then thinking oh, I isn't here. So I need to go somewhere else or I haven't found it yet is, you know, that's the great thing. All of a sudden one day you can go from not finding it to finding it. But I think it's all about like cultivating your passion rather than finding it is, is experiencing different things, trying different things. And from that, you'll find something you're passionate about, and maybe not just one thing, but I, if it's not your job, it's okay. Like, you know, it's not saying, because I think sometimes people get into this headspace and thinking, well, I'm not passionate about this. And this is what creates that internal dialogue of, oh, am I not happy here? Is this not right? Maybe I need to leave. When actually they didn't go and leave and go, oh, actually, I really enjoyed it there, is well, actually going, it doesn't always, always have to come from work. It's thinking, but why do you work? What are you passionate about outside of work that can drive it? Yeah, that's powerful. For you, what was it that gave you that feeling where you decided to make the switch? Because I think for a lot of people, the challenge is financial stability is probably a, a massive thing, right? Is how do I walk away from a consistent monthly income? How do I step away from the stability that comes with being a part of a, a company and then going out on my own? Passion can be fuel for those things, but for many, it's not enough, yeah. right? Because they're going to look at their situation and say, I can't make the switch. All of your points are extremely relevant in that your passion doesn't have to be your job. But I think what you do for work or a living, but at the same time, I think for, for a lot of us is that you spend so much time doing activities that generate revenue so you can keep a roof over your head. Mm -hmm. So in an ideal world, I think a lot of people aspire 
to work and operate or do something that generates revenue that they love yeah. in an ideal world. So that's a long-winded way of, in essence, asking you, what is your advice to people that want to do their passion in a revenue generating capacity, but have concerns about things like financial stability, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. I think there's a couple of things here and it is really important. You know, I'm not expecting everyone to listen to this and go, I'm going to go and quit my job tomorrow. <laughs> I think it's a couple of things. First of all, which I did, which I mentioned at the start is think, can I do this on the side? Like, do I necessarily have to go from doing A to B or can I do like A slash B? and actually find ways of doing it already and think, how do I build this in? So that's what I did, for example, with the podcast and then with the talks and so on and got more comfortable, which built my confidence and understanding of the sector and built my network as well, obviously through things like LinkedIn and meeting yourself and other people to actually go, do you know what? Yeah, I've got something here. So that's A, if, if you can't do that, is going, rather than thinking and worrying about that, is going, what would it take for me to be able to do that? What would it, what, how much money would I need in the bank, for example, for me to feel comfortable to make the leap and go, do you know what, I can survive for the next six months? And then go, what can I cut back in my life? Like, if I want to make this leap, I need to understand that I'm not just necessarily going to go straight away, maybe, from earning this to this. And you might do, but you've got to ask yourself, am I okay with not? And if I'm not, and that's okay if you're not, but okay, if I need to earn, if I'm earning 100K, I need to earn 100K. Okay, well, for me to then go and do that in the business, what do I need to do within the business in the first 12 months? And what do I need to do to feel comfortable to make that leap right now? How much money would I want in the bank? Or maybe I'd want 40K, for example. Okay, and what else? Well, I'd want to feel like I knew this. Okay, and I want to do that. Okay, what are those things you can do now before you go and make the leap? Maybe you can start speaking to people. Can you work on the website? Can you work on the product? Like all these things, like proactively thinking about them, going, what can I do in this situation before I then have to make that jump? Because by doing that, I can then get a better understanding and go, do you know what? I see something here. So for me, before I made the leap, I started speaking to people about the idea. I spoke to 10, 15 sales leaders that obviously been doing it on the side. Every single one of them was like, yeah, there's nothing else here. I think you should really go for it. And that helped build that comfortable confidence. And I was like, right, okay, how much do I need in the bank? I need this. Okay, great. I've got that. What else? Because I think sometimes you don't want to get into the analysis paralysis is, well, what else? And it's like, actually, there isn't anything else. Because again, there's never going to feel like the right time at the same time. You can have all these things written down, but you've kind of got to go, well, do you know what? I've just got to make a leap at some point. But having those tangible things, I think, can help, or at least starting something on the side can also do the same. That's, yeah, great advice. And I think really, really helpful for, for people out there. Chris, it's, it's been a phenomenal conversation. I, I have one last question for you, which is, what do you say to the person who's out there right now in whatever position they are that wants to go from where they are to elite? What's the biggest, best piece of advice that you'd give that person? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is increase that level of self-awareness of where your gaps are right now, where your strengths are, and also think about how can I champion myself more? Because you have all the feedback from managers, people around you, but you need to be your biggest champion. And we're often our biggest critic. And it's thinking, if I'm not already, how am I giving myself more credit for what I'm doing? How can I then build that, that self-belief, that confidence from that to do it? And I think the second thing is around the, the conversation you're having with yourself is thinking, would you, if, the, if you had a twin and he was sitting next to you all day, would you want to spend time with that person? If you didn't, then that's what needs to change. And then starting to think, right, asking through questions, as I mentioned earlier, how do I change that? 
Fantastic. I mean, uh, no one can complain about the the insights driven <laughs> from this one. So Chris, really grateful to have you here. Thanks so much for, for spending some time with us. Where can people find you? Yeah. So um, find me on LinkedIn, Chris Hatfield, not Hadfield. Some people, if you type it in on Google, <laughs> the astronaut comes up. My One of my little mini goals is to rank higher than him on SEO by the end of my life. Um, and also Sales Psyche is Sales Psyche, which is psyche.co.uk as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Chris, great to have you here. Thanks again to anyone that tuned in. Thanks for doing so. If you took at least one actionable insight away from this, then please make sure that you like, comment, share and subscribe. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.